Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning, church. How are we this morning? Good deal. If you if you sing any louder, we're going to end up having church up in here. That was good. Like I was in, I was encouraged by that. So keep keep doing that. Uh, also, question for you: How many of you read ahead in our books? Whenever we're going through a book, how many of you read ahead to the scriptures or kind of let them marinate over you before coming in here? Anybody? If you don't raise your hand, it's okay. I'm not like you know jumping on you, but. If you do read ahead, I'm interested, you don't have to tell me, this is more rhetorical, but interested to know whether you, like, how you think I'm going to handle this text coming up. Because this is one of the most bizarre texts, uh, especially in the book of Ruth, probably one of the most complicated texts to cover on, um, on just the subject matter at hand. And so it's, it's a really interesting one that we're going to be jumping in. So if, you, so if you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter 3 uh, is where we're going to be. And uh, I've titled this one, Things Are Not Always What They Seem. Things Are Not Always What They Seem. And so as you're turning there last week, uh, just to kind of catch you up, not on the whole book, uh, you can go back and, and listen to the sermons to kind of catch you up on the whole thing. But last week, what we saw Boaz do was sort of take uh, this initiative a little bit closer, a little bit further with Ruth by inviting her to a meal uh, now, this wasn't just like a one-on-one -on -one date, okay? This is him inviting her to a meal with all of his uh, employees and, and both men and women within his company, inviting them to a midday meal in order for them to kind of fuel up, uh, to continue going back out and continuing to uh, reap the harvest uh, in his fields that he owns. And so... Uh, one of the things that we saw from that is that she not only was able to eat and be full and satisfied, but able to take enough home for Naomi to be able to give to her, for her to be full and satisfied. But then we also saw the generosity of Boaz go a step further from just what was provided to him in the law to now allowing him to, to have Ruth go out and glean among the reapers, uh, among his employees. So as they're going through and harvesting, she was able to go alongside of them and harvest. And one of the cool things that was even mentioned in the text was for them to take the bundles of barley and literally drop them on purpose in order for her to be able to come through and work the fields and be able to take home what we saw was an ephah of barley, which is at least two weeks worth in a day's work. And so she was able to take a lot of wages, a lot of work, a lot of barley, a lot of harvest home uh, in order for provision to be had. And so, again, one of the things that we saw in that picture of kind of Boaz being the type of Christ for us and Ruth being the type of church, and as we see this kind of marriage coming together, is as we are working uh, for the Lord as we are working out and, and doing ministry. And when I say doing ministry, I'm not re just referring to uh, us on staff or our leadership team or those leading our ministry teams, but the entire church doing the work of ministry. God is going ahead of us and providing for us, dropping handfuls on purpose in order for us to fuel up, to be full, to be satisfied, and also to be able to have the resources needed in order to go out and do the work that he has called us to do. And so we're going to continue diving into what happens when she gets home and she's kind of talking with Naomi and a little bit of time passes uh, to where I think Naomi 
um, at, uh, she just really doesn't know what to do next. And I think there's a little bit of anxiety that's maybe coming in that uh, harvest season is coming to an end. And so if they don't lock in a redeemer, if they don't lock in someone who's going to be able to take care of them and provide for them, then what are they going to do past harvest season? And so, again, this is um, questionable counsel at best. All right? it's, it's not the, it, we're not going to say it's good godly counsel. I'm not necessarily going to say it's sinful, wrong counsel, but it is definitely questionable counsel. And so we're going to dive into it and, uh, and just kind of see what the, the Lord has for us. Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So again, she's been working hard. She's been gleaning. She's been providing for both of them. But harvest season, again, coming to an end. She's maybe trying to get her ducks in a row, trying to get her future and affairs in order. Like, what can we do that allows us to not be anxious, but allows us to be able to rest? Is not Boaz our relative? with whose young women you were. Again, he provided that community for her, that fellowship for her among the women who are working within his fields and company as well. See that he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So, again here, I think one of the things that Naomi is doing is, in this culture, in this context, one of the things that they do is, is, is a lot of provision follows through the male follows through the head of household, follows through that type of legacy or lineage. And, and really, it's part of their, uh, within their culture, it's part of their provision is the Lord commands for the males to make sure that there's provision happening. And so again, even though she has been working, and even though she is going out and gleaning, and even though she is doing those things on a daily basis, at the same time, as far as provision that is going to last, especially through the dry seasons or the winter seasons, like this is when the Lord brings in or unites a redeemer or someone who's going to take care of, especially those who are widowed. And so again, here, Naomi's looking out at the options. And Naomi, being older in age at this point, also knows that she's probably not the best candidate. And so she's kind of looking at Ruth and saying, who would be a good candidate for you? As I'm looking out and I'm looking for someone who would be godly and who would be able to provide and who would be able to redeem our family, and we'll get into what that actually means here in a little bit. But she's looking out at the options and she knows that, again, Boaz has taken an interest in Ruth, at least to an extent of a friend, but a friend in whom he is wanting to make sure that she's taken care of. And so as she's looking out at the options, she knows that Boaz is an option because he is also a single guy. And she is saying, what about Boaz? Have you thought about him lately? Let's see what he's up to right now. Let's see what's going on with him. Let's see if he has his you know, profile on any dating sites or anything like that. Like, let's just see what Boaz is up to. See if, now that we're coming to the end of harvest season, I guarantee he's going to be down at the threshing floor. I guarantee he's going to be winnowing there. And we'll get into what that means here in a minute. And here comes some interesting advice for her. Verse 3. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. How many of you don't like where this is going? I mean, I don't like where it's going. Especially now if you're single, you might be thinking, I like where this is going. But shame on you if you're thinking that. All right. It's 
check your heart on that. But if you're married and with children, you know this is not counsel that you would give to a child of yours, especially a daughter of yours. I mean, how many mothers in here would tell their daughters, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get dressed up real nice. All right, I want you to get all, all dolled up. I want you to do that. I want you to make sure that you smell nice as well because up to this point, he's only seen you when you're like pitted out, working in the fields. Um, so like, don't go based on that. Like, let's get you all dressed up and let's get you pretty and let's get you smelling nice and those things. And then I want you to go down to where he's hanging out and, and wait until he's had a few drinks. It's just uncomfortable. I mean, this is 3,000 years ago, and it's still uncomfortable even in our culture. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Again, just let that marinate for a second. Like when he lies down. Like if you're single, nothing good or godly ever happens when you're horizontal. Right? I mean, let's, can we just speak honest in here? Nothing good ever happens when you're horizontal. Even if you're dating and the person is sick and lying down, just call 911. Don't even get involved. <laughs> Don't get involved. It's not going to work out. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I just don't like the way that this sounds. Not any of it. Because I'm sure he will tell her what to do. That's the problem. And again, like how many of our parents, especially with children, your daughter, wait until he's camping, wait until he's had a few drinks, wait until he's in the tent, wait until he gets in his sleeping bag, go in, unzip his sleeping bag, just snuggle up with him, and then when he wakes up, say, tell me what to do. <laughs> like, it's questionable advice at best. At best. I don't know that I would give this advice. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, we got to remember here. Ruth is a Moabite woman, all right? She comes from a culture that has not trained her well or discipled her well in how to handle these situations. Okay, Now, we also know that she has converted and that she trusts in the God of Israel and that she has given herself over to the God of Israel and that she is now with God's presence and with God's people. But at the same time, she is still very much a young believer. She's still very much young in her discipleship, young in her sanctification. And so a lot of her spiritual maturity is going to come from her mother-in-law because that is the person that she is tied closest to but again, with Naomi, and I, I hate always just railing on Naomi, but Naomi's not the best Christian in this context to provide her with good discipleship, right? I mean, we got to remember, with the two daughters-in-law, she told one of them to go back to her gods and to her immoral lifestyle and to her immoral people, and that was okay. Like, she wanted that for her. And then now coming into the scene, again, she's... She's just not the best one to provide maybe the best Christian counsel. And this is why, again, like we believe in counseling. We think you should get counseling, especially when you're walking through issues. We don't just say, go see any Christian counselor. We say, make sure it's a wise Christian counselor. Because just because you're Christian doesn't mean you give the best advice. And here, even though Naomi is Christian, we don't believe she's giving the best advice. And so again... She's walking into this, and she goes down to the threshing floor. Now, to explain the threshing floor a little bit, it's a place where at the end of harvest, 
you would bring your grain and you would toss it into the air and it would literally separate the wheat from the chaff and the chaff would blow away and because the wheat was heavier it would fall to the floor and then at that point they would be able to go in and they would gather up all their grains and to be able to literally take inventory on their stock for the season. And so this was, if you will, during harvest, this is payday. All right. This is the big celebration. This is when all of uh, the employees in the company are getting their shares. Uh, the owners being able to understand how much he's going to have. Like, this is a good day in which they have celebrations at the threshing floor. They have parties at the threshing floor. This is a good time in which they are coming together to do this. And so you have, and especially in this culture, a lot of the blue collar men are coming to do this. They're coming to partake in this party where there's going to be food and feasting and celebration and unfortunately Hosea 9 1 says it also provides opportunity for prostitutes within the within the culture to be able to come to the threshing floor because they know the blue-collar men are just getting their paychecks they're just partying they're getting full they're merry in heart because they've had a little extra to drink and so it's a great opportunity and it's a great temptation and so here again when it comes to this sort of uh, commentating on this passage, commentators are all over the map on it. You have commentators who, at worst, are saying, um, again, this is terrible advice from Naomi. This is essentially her prostituting her daughter-in-law out in order to provide something for them as they're heading into the winter months. Uh, this is just not a good situation for her to be in. And then on the other side of the coin, you have commentators who are saying that Naomi and Ruth so trust in the sovereignty and providence of God that she is just putting herself out there, even though it's risky, knowing that God is going to come through and make sure that she is provided for in this next season. And again, knowing that the Bible is really for us a lot of case studies of a lot of interesting characters. I'm going to say it's probably somewhere in the middle here. Somewhere in the middle here. And I would feel confident being able to say that. That I don't think it's great advice, but I also know that there is a trusting in the providence of God to be able to provide for them and what they need. Now, with that being said, as we kind of come into this, what, what do we do with that? Like, How, how does this inform us on, on kind of where they end up going with their dating relationship is the situation that they're about to find themselves in or are in. Uh, is it a situation where it's crossed the line? What do we do here? What do we do here? Because again, I think even maybe within this room, we would probably be split between some of those things. Is it terrible advice? Absolutely, I'm on that side. Is it still providential sovereign advice? I'm still on that side. I think we would maybe be all over the place as well. Another tidbit to kind of add to this, this passage is also just descriptive and not prescriptive. So one of the things that the Bible does for us is, again, as a case study, is it provides information for us and provides narrative and provides stories for us of how things happened, maybe not necessarily how things should have happened. And so with us working it out in our salvation, with us working out with the Holy Spirit, there is opportunity for us to seek counsel throughout the rest of Scriptures to determine whether or not these recorded passages were wise or not wise. And I think this is, again, one of those ones that is descriptive, 
allowing for us to glean a situation that probably wasn't the best situation to be in, while at the same time knowing what would have been a better situation to be in, what would have been a better choice to have made in this kind of context and what's going on here. And I actually think that would be a great question uh, for you to kind of work out in your community groups this week is um, with what happened in this passage, did they cross the line? And I'll kind of get in a minute here on what we mean by crossing the line, but I think it's a good question to, to ask. And, and again, with all of this, it, it's just questionable. And, and I think the Bible is the most honest book ever written. I really do. I think it's the most honest book ever written. And the reason why is because even though it was written by over 40 different authors, 66 books, over 40 different authors, inspired and revealed by the Lord, it still includes these messy situations. If it was, and that's one of the reasons why we know it was revealed and inspired by the Lord, because if it was just men writing the book and wanting to do as men do, which is um, always present ourselves in the most heroic and best situation possible, this book would have been written a little differently. We would leave out the messy situations. Peter is going to make sure that they leave out the fact that he denied Jesus three times. Hey, when you talk about my ministry tenure, let's just forget that one moment that, you know, it was also before Pentecost. So let's just remove that whole thing before Pentecost. Well, Peter, what about the time when you were racist after Pentecost? I just leave that one out as well. Like, let's just do that. So the Bible's honest, and it allows us to be able to discern as we work through it wise counsel versus foolish counsel. And so I think that's where we find ourselves in this text. So search for counsel from Christians who are wise and who hold their counsel as close to the Word of God as they possibly can. And that's what she did, just as her mother had commanded her. Verse 7 and when Boaz had eaten and drinking, and his heart was merry, all right, he's, he's in a good mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Now, he's in a good mood, payday's here, end of season, and he's going to sleep at the end of his harvest to protect his profits. And that's what actually the employees would do. They would, they would all literally sleep around it so that other robs and thieves wouldn't come in and take from their profits uh, what, what they don't deserve. So then she came softly, like a little ninja in the night. <laughs> she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. All right, now remember, Boaz is also a single guy here, okay? He's a single guy. How do you know what kind of guy would find this tempting? A guy that's breathing. I mean, that's just all honest, all right? It doesn't matter how godly you are. It's going to be a tempting situation. It's at midnight. No one's around. They're alone. It's a tempting situation. He said, who are you? Maybe she, she, she dolled herself up so much that he's used to seeing her as kind of the pitted out one that's walking through the fields. So now he's seeing her as she's all beautiful and, and has her, this outer cloak on. Like she's got the best that she can find on and she's looking the best that she could possibly look. And so he's kind of, again, um, drawn back by this. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. 
Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And what that literally means is it's just a level under an engagement, like her just proposing on the spot. It's basically her saying, I know that you are a redeemer within the family line of, of, of who we belong to, and uh, would you be willing to marry me? That's essentially what that statement or that phrase is, is asking. And he said to her, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. That's good. It's a good start, Boaz. All right, That's, I'm going to view you like a daughter, okay? You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, at one point he told her, he kind of encouraged her when she was gleaning in the fields to not worry about the young men that are around, that he's commanded them not to touch her, not to pursue her, not to do anything that would be unholy towards her. And she also has upheld her end of the bargain by not tempting any of them. Because again, going back to the fact that she was a Moabite woman, how did the Hebrew men usually view Moabite women? Very attractive, very tempting, ones that they would honestly be willing to break the law to go after. And so again, tempted, but yet she was not also partaking or participating in that. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So again, here, Boaz, uh, just answering the call of the temptation here. My daughter, my daughter. Like I, I, am, I am encouraging your reputation. I am encouraging your faithfulness. I am encouraging the fact that even among the townsmen, you are considered a worthy woman. Now, it's important here to know that he calls her a worthy woman. The reason why is because also earlier in the book, we've heard of Boaz and his reputation that he is a what? A worthy man, all right? So for him to be a worthy man and for, him, for her to be a worthy woman amongst the reputation of the city and of the town, this would provide them what we call equally yoked. Equally yoked, all right? A good match, okay? The Bible is all about when two people come together for them to be equally yoked. Verse 12, And now it is true that, yes, I am a redeemer, Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. So there's a problem here. There's a problem. He may have be, or he might literally be in the moment of taking an interest in her and wanting to pursue her in relationship. And as she is now basically put out on the table, would you be willing to marry me? One of the things that he knows is according to law and according to him being, um, being or living out that culture, is the fact that for them it has to come in line with the redeemers. And what that means is, is in Elimelech's family, again, for Elimelech to be the head of their household, for him to pass away and leave Naomi widowed, and then for his sons, Malon and Kilion, who would be the next redeemers, for them to be dead as well, as we saw in chapter 1, what that then leads to is in order for um, Naomi and Ruth to be taken care of and to have provision within the culture, there would be the next of kin, essentially. Usually Elimelech's brother or um, in, in kind of along that line. Or even for Malon and Kilian, if there were other brothers, it would fall within those lines. But there was no one else at that time. And so when she comes to 
Boaz, who's not a close relative, but a distant relative, he knows of a relative who is actually closer. And so for him to, again, abide by the law, he would have to go to that kinsman redeemer and say, there's an opportunity for you, if you choose, to pursue Ruth for marriage in order to redeem their household, in order to make provision for them and take care of them as they continue to work out their lives. And so that kind of provides for him a little bit of a problem or, or a, a bump in the road in being able to actually pursue Ruth. Now, what does he do next? Verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, referring to the close relative, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now again, this is complicated because I would never advise, again, two non-married individuals to sleep together or stay the night together alone. Usually nine times out of ten, it leads to acts that are not inherently wrong, they're only wrong in time. Again, this is one of the issues that I see with Christianity, and this is, and I would say maybe kind of get some feedback from you, Midwestern culture Christianity as well, but specifically Southern culture where I come from, all you ever hear is sex is bad, it's 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 bad. When you get married, it's good. Flip the switch. And what you actually end up seeing is coming into marriage, it's hard for people to make that switch. It's hard for people to change it and be able to say, man, this is a good, gracious, glorious, beautiful thing that we get to now work out and, and figure out and enjoy when all my life, especially during my teenage years, I've been just preached and told, this is evil, it's wrong, you don't do this. You run from it, you flee from it. And I think what a better way to approach this type of conversation or this type of text is to be able to say what it is. Sex is a wonderful, beautiful thing that God created and ordained in order to bring two people together for one. Literally working out the physicality of them to be able to fit together. That's about as much as I need to say about that. But this is also a spiritual thing. And so this is what the Bible refers to as covenant leading into consummation. Covenant leading into consummation. And the reason why I bring this up is, again, in this scenario... What would typically happen or statistically happen in our culture in day and age is they're just going to enjoy and, 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 and figure one another out and explore one another and more than likely move in together. Because we are now in our American culture for the first time ever at a place where singleness is the majority and being married is the minority and we actually now see a prolonged, um, prolonged season of, of singleness where cohabitation predates living or, or being married. And that's normative now. It's normative. And I think what we're actually seeing is really just the fruits of out of the 60s, you had the gender revolution, then led into the sexual revolution, which then led into the legalization of abortion, which then led into the no-fault divorce, and then you've got birth control following that. And, and as you just kind of walk through this sexual revolution over the last half century, what it has produced is 
cohabitation rather than a biblical view of marriage. Because you can enter into this without having any of the risks involved. Without having any of the risks involved. And what we see, unfortunately, what we see statistically is if they were to bring their relationship into modern day, this is probably what their next step would be. Let's move in together. Instead of pursuing a biblical design. And here's what some of the stats from a secular sociologist, um, sociologist reveal. And so again, I wanted to pull this not from, not from a Christian worldview. I wanted to pull this from literally a secular worldview. That for those who lived together before marriage, your rates of divorce range anywhere from 33 to 151% higher than for those who don't live together before getting married. In fact, living together is not preparing you for marriage, it's actually preparing you for divorce. When we do consummation before covenant, it creates all kinds of chaos, confusion, and collateral damage. Because literally, the act of consummation, that's sex, if you don't know what I mean by that, the act of consummation is a spiritual act where God is literally bringing two souls together and making one. Making one. That's what He's doing. And so when that is not after the legal covenant and commitment to one another, when you don't have that legal covenant and commitment to one another, and all you're doing is entering into this act that is trying to bring two souls together who are not committed to one another spiritually, again, it creates all of this chaos, it creates all of this collateral damage and confusion in a relationship. And so with that, that's why we see that relationships that operate in this way are twice as likely to be assaulted, like, like as far as women in the relationships, are twice as likely to be assaulted and even nine times more likely to be murdered, just in general, in relationships. In addition, for those who cohabitate, they have depression rates that are three times higher than married couples. Furthermore, women... Again, I already said this. That. Here's the main idea. God's way is still the best way. God's wisdom on relationships is still the best wisdom on relationships. Because what we're seeing in our culture right now is just a philosophy of doing relationships. It's trial and error. It is what sounds like not a bad idea. What, what it sounds like is test drive the vehicle before you buy it. That's what it is. So if you look at it just, again, non-biblically, non-spiritually, yeah, that makes sense. Test drive the vehicle before you buy it. Figure out if you enjoy all things with this person. Live with them for a while. That sounds like a good idea. But again, as you go through it and you confuse it and bring in chaos and collateral damage and all those things that are outside of God's design for it, all it is doing is providing for you or training and discipling you for divorce. That whenever I test drive it and I don't like this feature, or it's got this knocking sound in the engine, or it's got whatever it is, like I'm going to go get a different vehicle. I'm not going to do the work of committing to this one covenantly 
for a lifetime, I'm going to go get a better model. I'm going to upgrade, if you will. And that's the issue that we see in our culture right now. And so what I want in this case study is for us to just consider, especially for those who are bringing up children, for those who are single and pursuing relationships, for those who are engaged and pursuing marriage, I want us just to consider this for a moment. This case study with Boaz and Ruth, is it an alternative way to what our culture is preaching today? Is it a good and right way of doing things? Boaz here is not looking for a good time. He's looking for a good legacy. He's not looking for a good time. He's looking for a good legacy. For those who know the end of the story, I'm going to go ahead and just spoil it for you. Ruth and Boaz do get married. Ruth and Boaz do have a child. They call him Obed. Obed becomes the grandfather of King David. King David, through his lineage, comes who? Who? Come on, Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus. He makes a good decision on this night. His test becomes a beautiful testimony. And that is important for us to understand and to know that again, it might be easy for us to look for the temporary moments of pleasure that would be enjoyable, but are we looking for the temporary moments of pleasure or are we looking for something long-lasting that is eternal and that is going to provide a legacy? And that's what he's choosing in this moment. And he's also doing it in a way that he knows the type of woman that Ruth is. When it refers to her as a worthy woman, it is the same language being used as the Proverbs 31 woman. That she is not just some prostitute coming down to the threshing floor, but that she is someone that he views as worthy, and so much so that you're going to see how he now responds and how he deals with the situation at hand in order to protect who she is, and to encourage who she is, rather than involving her in something that's going to tarnish her reputation, or that's going to rob of her or take from her something that is not his yet. Verse 14, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. It's still dark outside, it's still hard to be able to see. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the, to the threshing floor. He's not only guarding her purity throughout the night, but he's also guarding her reputation. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. That's about 80 pounds of barley that he puts on her. Now, I don't know if he's putting 80 pounds on so that when she's carrying it out, no one can see her. But he's putting 80 pounds of barley on her, which would actually provide about two months worth of provision for them. So again, we're seeing a couple of things working itself out in this type of Christ of who Boaz is. We're still seeing his generosity, but we're also seeing him correct and encourage character that is godly. Correct and encourage character that is godly. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? How'd it go? How was the night? <laughs> oh, Naomi. 
Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You see, Boaz is the kind of man who pours life into others. For the reapers, he's spiritually encouraging them when he walks onto the scene. Blessed be you, and they respond, blessed are you as well. He's, he's incorporating worship within his company and within his business. For Ruth, inviting her to the table, inviting her to be full and satisfied, encouraging her. And now he's also doing the same for Naomi as well. He's wise enough to know why Naomi sent Ruth in the first place. That maybe there's some anxiety going on with Naomi that she's worried about being able to have enough being able to eat, being able to provide for her household. And so he's thinking about that as well. Verse 18, Naomi now responds. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now this matter is in regards to the redemption of their household. Since she's probably told her about Boaz having the conversation that there is a Redeemer closer than him. And so she wants Ruth now to wait. She finally gives her some good advice. Wait. Don't do anything. Lest you screw it up. Let's just wait and see what happens. I can't help but think about God sending His Son to settle the matters for his soon-to-be bride, the church. If the church had a mother-in-law, the advice would be, go and work your way into the covenant with the Lord. Go and work your way into it. Figure out how to get into that covenant. Thankfully, the, the church doesn't have a mother-in-law that does that. But God has a different way, and it's grace. And it's grace through the redemption of Jesus' blood. I mean, this, think about this in regards to, to what we just saw play out in this story. Ephesians 2, 8-9. through 9, For by grace, that is the gift of God, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Alright, Ruth, you don't have to do anything to earn favor. You don't have to do anything to earn redemption. You don't have to do anything to earn provision. Wait. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. This would have been a great segue into communion, but being in a shared space, someone misplaced our communion, so we don't know where it is. So today, in lieu of communion, we're going to let this marinate for us for a little bit. Now I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up. And so, band, please go ahead and come on up here. And as they're coming up here, I want us to just kind of sit and think and ponder this situation. Again, questionable counsel, counsel that I would not necessarily give to somebody. But I still love the outcome that comes from this. I still love the fact that there is provision had and that there is worthy godly actions that were taken and that God can ultimately be honored and glorified in 
what happened amongst Boaz and Ruth. I don't believe in this situation that they crossed the line in, in any way. Honestly, I think for Boaz, he's not thinking about what can I do to cross the line or how close can I get to the line. I think he's thinking more of like a future passage that's going to be written in Corinthians where it says, don't let there be any hint of sexual immorality among you. Don't worry about how close you can get. Worry more about purity and honoring the Lord and knowing that in His beautiful design, He's able to work out our flourishing. Our flourishing. For it to be full and satisfying as well. And so for us, this is an opportunity to be able to kind of glean in, are there certain circumstances in my life right now, and you might be married, and that's great. You might be single and pursuing and thinking about this. At the end of the day, what counsel are we receiving? And is it wise? Is it wise, Christian, godly counsel that allows us to be encouraged towards the way God has designed things to work for our good, for our fullness, for our satisfaction, for our flourishing, and for Him to get all the glory as we live it out. For us to be able to say, that was way better than what the world was telling me to do. And so God, you are way better than what the world has to offer for me. Way better. So I'm going to worship you rather than worshiping these smaller idols of temporary pleasure. And you can really apply this to any situation. No matter what it is that you're walking through, we're in need of counsel and advice. Are you willing to seek out good, godly, wise counsel that helps you work out your situations so that there's flourishing to be had? And so let's just kind of marinate with this one for a little bit. And let's just kind of spend some time as they sing through this song and as you feel that fullness and satisfaction well up, that the Lord is good and gracious to us, then let's let it overflow in worship as we sing to Him and tell Him how good and gracious He is. And then at the end of the song, I will come back up and we will celebrate in a time of baptism. Let's meditate together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at